0: Welcome to the ASCD Connect Podcast, supporting you on your journey as a life-changing educator. Here's your host for today's program. Hi, everyone. I'm Anthony Rabora, the Editor-in-Chief of ASCD's Educational Leadership. High-poverty schools face deep challenges in making substantive gains in student learning and achievement. This is particularly true after the disruptions of the pandemic. What steps can leaders and educators in these schools take to better support learning at this time? What can other educators learn from this work? To delve into answers to these questions, I'm joined today by William Parrott and Kathleen Budge, who are internationally recognized for their work in high-poverty schools and are the authors of numerous books, including Turning High-Poverty Schools into High-Performing Schools. They also have a must-read article in the December 2022 issue of Educational Leadership titled Learning from Schools on the Path to High-Performing. Welcome, Bill and Kathleen. It is wonderful to have you on our program.
1: Thank you for having us. Great
2: to be here thanks Anthony.
0: So let's get right to the discussion in your article, one thing you say is that while well, resource disparities often play a large role in the struggles of high poverty schools it is I'm quoting here it is educators' beliefs that pose the greatest barriers to improving learning and achievement in high poverty schools. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: sure I'll take a stab at that. So we never want to um, to minimize the fact that, there is a disparity in resources often available to high poverty schools and it makes a difference. Teachers, sometimes they do, but often they don't have any control over that. But the thing they do have a control control over is what they believe about their students, about their students' capabilities, about themselves, their capabilities and their colleagues. And if you don't believe that Kids can do well despite the challenges, given the right supports. If you don't believe that you have the capacity to do it, if you're not confident in your colleague's ability to do it, that barrier, is a, is it's hard to get over that one. So that's the one that we have to tackle first. We have control over it, and and it's something that if we don't tackle it, it's always going to be in our way.
0: So as you both know, there's been a lot of interest lately in accelerated learning interventions to help students make up ground. Uh, in the wake of the pandemic, but you emphasize that in your experience working in uh, high poverty schools, that schools generally don't intervene their way to better academic outcomes. Can you talk a little about what you mean by that?
2: Well, for for years, as we've worked with schools and talked to groups and worked with leaders, uh, I've listened to Kathleen utter the phrase, you're not going to intervene your way to high performance if you have a significant number of the kids in your school that are low performing. And uh, for years, for decades, interventions have been a primary focus uh, of what do we do with those kids that are behind? And, and indeed interventions are, are invaluable. They work. They tutoring is, is regarded as one of the most highly effective means of teaching and has been since, you know, for centuries. That said, you can only do so much if you have a school that is dominated by by low performance with interventions, and we've seen it again and again and again, where the focus is on tutoring and pullouts and uh, catch ups and all kinds of strategies that can and have been proven to be effective, but we've yet to find a school that has clearly raised its level of performance and student success or they would tell us we did it through interventions
1: you know the thing about interventions is it all of the schools that we studied did use them they increased the week the day they had tutoring they had after school programs they had they had interventions the thing that they also had that is they had improved the everyday what we would call tier one instruction. And that's that's the problem with interventions is that if, you know, 60 or 70% of your kids aren't meeting standards in, in reading and in math and science, social studies, whatever your state looks at, you can't you can't have enough interventions. There's not enough time in the day. And it's and the problem is we want to have better teaching of those students in the beginning before they need interventions. So that's that's the that's the dual piece there. Too often we think, you know, we can close gaps in places that have lots of kids who are not meeting standard by giving them more, when in fact we need to make sure that the quality of we get what we gave gave them in the first place is is good and is meeting their needs. And so that's really what we mean by that, is that you'll have to deal with improving tier one instruction and you'll have to do it collaboratively.
2: Which is what we found occurring in the schools that we studied. As Kathleen said, they did indeed use intervention strategically and carefully, but they also focused heavily on on the reality that, that if we're intervening, if that's what we're going to do most of the time with these kids, they're going to be out of the regular classroom. They're going to be elsewhere in the building, or they're going to have to be going a lot more to more school. So that's the, the I guess, the gist of it is that that we find is m- probably the most difficult in throughout public schools that we work in is facing that reality that our classroom instruction is not as effective as it should be.
0: So you you also stress the importance of leadership capacity and commitment in turning around high poverty schools in this way. Uh, so what's your central message to district and school leaders when you begin working with them?
2: When you asked us about resource disparities in schools that that led to underperformance and and a lack of success with kids, one of the one of the clear indicators of that for us has been. Whether the leadership structure in that school buys into the notion that all kids can accomplish this work and can achieve, in essence, high expectations, harbor and hold high expectations for every student. And so, if a leadership structure within a school, if leaders within a school, if the principal within a school does not truly believe and work toward the notion that we're going to figure out whatever it takes for these kids to get to whatever our state is expecting them to be at proficiency-wise, knowing that they're going to have to do a lot of work to catch kids up, if that isn't present, uh, the chances of that school making significant gains, we found, is is pretty well, unlikely. Yes. At best, Quite perhaps. unlikely. And so leader, leadership and leadership capacity means everything. And it's not just the principal, it's the the teams it's the building leadership team it's the the grade level teams of educators it's the relationship with all the adults in the school among the classified staff as well try to try to develop that perspective that we're we're behind these kids we're going to figure out what it takes to get them there and we're going to work together to do it and we've heard time and time again from leaders who have expressed to their in these high-performing schools we've studied who've expressed in their hiring as well as to their staff, if this is not where you are, this may not be the place for you in terms of of your work and your participation with us. Your belief system.
0: Okay, so how do you know when a school that you're working with is on a path to solid improvement, even apart from test scores, which you note sometimes comes later? What are the indicators in the school culture that you're looking for?
1: you do see a change in the school culture. And interestingly, it, it doesn't, it isn't that they purposefully worked on school culture. It's that they actually did something that improved their skills to actually improve learning for kids. And out of that success comes a belief in, um, in their kids and in themselves. And that's a part of what leads to self-efficacy and what leads to collective efficacy and um, I guess what I would say about that is you can see that uh, teachers uh, raise their expectations. That's a that's a that's a cultural uh, be- that's a value. It's a belief and it's a norm. Um, in disrupting poverty, uh, five powerful classroom practices. That book we spoke a lot about um, the the you know the the five elements of classroom culture. And, you know, they were caring relationships, high expectations, committing to equity, uh, professional accountability for learning and courage and will to take action. And those things all came about and you can see them when you see teachers persevering. So when we go in and we're working like a school that we wrote about uh, for the December issue, we saw relationships improve between teachers and kids. We saw their expectations go up. We saw them leveling the playing field, um, either as a school or in their own classrooms. Um, We saw them persevering because they understood and believed that they had professional accountability for student learning. So when a child didn't learn, they moved away from blame and go back to the drawing board. So those cultural elements that we speak of actually in both of the books um, are the ones that we begin to see when we know a school is on a path to improvement.
2: So I can I can provide or offer a very specific example, not necessarily of anything Kathleen's talking about, but but this came to us in our in our last study from a principal and we realized, well we've known this a long time, but he said it really well. When we ask him basically the same question, what what did, what did you have to do? What, where did it start what What did you do to modify and to improve the culture of this building? And he kind of chuckled and he said, well, the, the first thing I did was right out there, and he pointed to the front desk in the building. and he said, that role of the person that greets the families, the kids, the visitors to the school, Is incredibly important, and we have to have. We didn't have. We've made adjustments, and we now have the most welcoming, inviting person you could imagine. So that's something. That's something that is a clear indicator when you walk. When anybody walks in the school, is it formal? Is it welcoming? Is it happy? Does it smell good? Does it it, does it look good? Is it kids smile? All of that hugely important, and if that's in place chances are you're going to find a lot of other good things in place as well.
0: I see. I, I do want to follow up on something Kathleen said about collective and self efficacy uh, and the importance of that in this work. But uh, given the difficulty of this work and the frequent setbacks that educators are likely to face, what are the best ways for leaders in schools to cultivate that sense of efficacy in teachers?
1: You know, they have to. Uh, so first of all, um, there has to be a district, you know, if you look at the even what we referred to in the article, um, this isn't necessarily our expertise, but we sure see what Jenny Donahue, I think I'm saying her name right. Um, what she talks about when she talks about the conditions that have to be present for teachers to develop collective efficacy and, and a part of that inside of that is self-efficacy. Um, and, you know, one of the things is teachers have to be uh, leader in leadership positions. They need to be making decisions that are important and important about what they're going to learn and how they're going to learn it. They need to have a voice in that. Um, they also need lots of time to collaborate and that collaboration time needs to be structured and and um, work towards worthy goals and worthy purposes that they actually see a benefit from in their classroom. They need to have professional development that isn't just sit and get, that actually has an opportunity to get the information, practice the information, be coached on the information, um, fail in a safe place be respected as a professional in that learning environment. It's a lot, there's a lot of pieces there that go together. And they also, the other thing that is probably important to mention is it's not just the classroom teachers, all those other people that are adults that are in the building, um, the specialists, all those folks have a role in um, developing a sense of collective efficacy as a school. And Again, that's where high quality tier one instruction augmented by high quality interventions is going to result in kids learning more and a sense of the, co- the coll- colleagues collectively feeling like we can do this, we can do this. So they, that's, those are some of the things they need.
2: As, as efficacy develops and joins into collective efficacy with others, it's it's pretty clear to see in the schools we've studied the relationships that develop among staff the the attention and capacity they can give to a focus on results as opposed to effort meaning we're not so focused just on what we're doing it's what we're doing and its effect and we understand that those are those are key elements of self efficacy as well as collective efficacy that that clearly set classrooms and teachers and leaders and schools apart. If you're in a school where you don't have a leader that truly understands the significance and importance of building collective efficacy or helping individuals reach self-efficacy, you're gonna have an uphill climb to meeting the needs of the kids.
0: So you've been doing this work in high poverty schools for many years now. I was curious, Has anything changed in your approach or your philosophy? Are there any ways you've had to adapt or evolve your work in recent years?
1: So, yes, Um, I would say it's hard and complex work. And we're we're more confident of that. That said, we're also, I think, more efficient in knowing those leverage points, like building a quality leadership team to start the work. Focusing on literacy as your first endeavor, improving literacy because it's a gateway skill. You know we know more now from learning uh, both from those that are high performing and reflecting back on what they did and what we have done with schools as they've started wherever they are and moved forward.
2: And, and if and if you're looking for a floor, we often get asked that: Where do you start? What's the most important? we've yet to find one that is more important than a sincere significant commitment to equity and if and if you don't have equity going on in your school whether it's instructional whether it's materials whether it's competence and placement of teachers placement of kids outreach to family if you if you have issues related to equity you're never going to to be able to reach the the successes that you can, and that we see these schools that they, you know, it's kind of like every question that comes up whether to do something or not do something or start something they always base that in these schools. Well, is it gonna, what's it gonna do for all kids?
0: Yeah, and that's clear from the article. Um, so, what's one thing you'd like policymakers or political leaders to know about the needs of students who are in poverty?
2: If there, if you have to boil it to one thing, or if one thing rolls off my, my tongue, that I have a shot for in an elevator or wherever for a policymaker to, to know, it's that we as a nation have have designed a system of public education that is intended to provide an education to all kids. And we've watched the evolution in school districts over the last 20 to 30 years of the use of the word all. They now have it in their vision statements. They now have it in their mission statements. All kids, all kids. And it's the easiest, it's one of the easiest conversations to be able to have is to ask, you mean all kids, right? Yeah, we say it, all kids. Well, that means all kids. And that means you've got to have a level playing field there's no question that kids can achieve, will achieve, and do achieve. We've got models, examples around the country, around the world.
1: And I would say it differently than that. I don't think I would say that we have a system that is for all kids. That's the problem. We have a system that's for some kids, that that's built around some kids doing well. And it is, if you don't, if you haven't Uh, committed to all kids each each kid um, then you won't be leveling the playing field you won't be doing the things that you need to do to improve instruction say um, excellence in instruction classroom to classroom so that you know you know because most teachers know in any school most teachers are going to tell you that's the good the really good teacher that's the okay teacher we don't we don't have a system that really educates all kids but we have schools that have done that have done it and done it better than other kids, other schools. And I think what I would want them to know is I would want them to know that it isn't that it can't be done. It's that we have never had the will to get it done. And it starts from we have never had the will to fully fund um preschool we have never had the will to fully fund what we need to do it with kids with disabilities we've not had the will to say that kids in regardless of the neighborhoods they live in they're going to go to a school where the technology works and and they're free from you know whatever kind of toxin that might be in that school it, it's a will thing it isn't that we can't do this we can we can do it but there are some basic things. I mean, there are some things like let's just teach every kid to read. If we just started with that, if all we did was teach every kid to read, it would make a huge difference in our society.
0: Right. A lot of layers of inequity. Okay. So I'm running out of time, but just really quickly, I want to ask you what most inspires you in the work you do in high priority schools? What 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 are the things that keep you going?
1: You know, I love this question. I think what most inspires me when we go in and work in a low performing high poverty school that's committed to the work is their desire to do well to make a difference and to do well and we we don't give teachers the benefit of the doubt on that we don't give principals and we certainly don't give kids enough that we all want to do well and we see that that is that's inspirational to me we see that when we go in and work with the school that wants to do well they want to be better for their kids and their kids want to do well so that's what inspires me
2: i'm i'm most mostly inspired by the faces of kids and when i see kids that experience the joy of learning and understanding and and kind of figuring out why they're there and what they're doing and it happens of all kinds of kids in all kinds of schools. That inspires me. But I'm also inspired by by that look or that aha that I've seen so many teachers and principals and leaders have when they realize that this work can be done, that they can take kids places they never thought they would be able to, that their peers don't think they can, and they begin to figure out the basic elements of what has to be done in these schools. And that kind of joy, I mean, that gets back a little bit to the notion of of this is not a one-shot workshop kind of deal. It's not a one one book you read. It's a it's hard work. It's hard, hard work that when you sustain it, you'll see these you'll see these looks and hear these these inspirational thoughts and, and pictures will form of the staff and the people that are doing the work. Thank you
0: so much for sharing your ideas and expertise with us today, Bill and Kathleen. It's always inspiring to talk to you. Uh, And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in to read William Parrott and Kathleen Budge's article in the December, 2022 issue of educational leadership. Go to www.ased.org slash EL.